For more than 3,300 years, the Jewish people have preserved and transmitted their wisdom about how to live life. From generation to generation, parents taught their children, teachers taught their students, in a living chain that stretches back to the giving of that great wisdom in the Sinai Desert. Perhaps never has there been a generation more desperately in need of this ancient wisdom. A wisdom today made available to the English-speaking world by scholars like Lawrence Kellerman. Sit back and enjoy while Lawrence Kellerman takes you on an adventure into the world of ancient wisdom for modern minds. There's Gamoran Kasuvis, Daf Kuf Yudamad Base, the Talmud in Tractate Ketubot, page 110b, has a passage which reads as follows. It's a very strange passage, and we've discussed it before. Tana Rabbanan, our rabbis taught, Le'olam Yadur Adam, Be'er Yisrael, a person should always try to live in the land of Israel. Afilu Be'er Sheruba Ovde Kochavim even in a city which is primarily populated by non-Jews. Yeah? Ramallah. Yeah? But don't live in Chutzlaretz. Don't live outside of the land of Israel. Even if the city is primarily populated by Jews. Yeah? Borough Park. Yeah? Why? Why is it better to live in Ramallah than in Borough Park? Shekoladar be'eret Yisrael, because anyone who lives in Eretz Yisrael, doma elokah, because it seems like that person has a god. The koladar be'chutzlar, it's anyone who lives outside of the land of Israel. Doma, it seems, k'mishe'enlu elokah, as if that person has no god. So, this is an almost impossible to understand proposition that the Gemara is making. Start with the good side of it. A person who lives in Eretz Yisrael is as if they have a God. What do you mean as if I have a God? I have a God! Yeah? And if a person lives in Chutzlar, it's, it's as if they don't have a God? What are you talking about? The Vilna Gon grew up in Vilna. Yeah? Like, of, of course you have a God. Wherever you live, you have a God. God is omnipresent. So the Talmud also seemed to have been bothered by this. And the Talmud asks, the kol someone who lives outside of the land of Israel, he doesn't have a God? So the Gemara says, nah. Ella, rather, lomar lecha, this is just coming to tell you something much more reasonable, right? Shekoladar bechutzlar, it's anyone who lives outside of the land of Israel, kilu, it's as if they're serving a Vodazara. Yes, they're an idol worshiper. Yeah? There, that's much better. Okay, and amazingly, that's the Gemara's conclusion. That's actually how we paskin. That is, the, that is the final conclusion of the Gemara. The Gemara wraps up and says, no, if you live outside of Eretz Yisrael, you have a God, it's just that you're busy worshiping a Vodazara. Finished. That's the end of the Gemara. So the, the obvious question here is, first of all, what was the Gemara's Havamid? What was it thinking in the first place when the Gemara said that if you live in Eretz Yisrael, it's as if you have a God? And if you live outside of Eretz Yisrael, it's as if you don't have a God? Like, what were they thinking? And then what's the conclusion? This conclusion that 
No, if you live outside of Israel, you have a God, it's just that you're serving idols. What is that talking about? I mean, people live very fine, very firm lives outside of the land of Israel. So how can the Gemara accuse them of being involved in idol worship? By the way, the person who the Gemara accuses of being involved in idol worship, the Pasuk that's quoted, was David Melech. For a short period, he traveled outside the land of Israel, and during that period, the Gemara says he was worshiping idols. So what's going on here? Question number two. The Torah only threatens to throw the Jews out of Israel, out of the land of Israel, for a handful of sins. There's punishments for every sin, but okay, you know, the, the different kinds of punishments can happen. But if a person does certain sins, God says, I will toss them out of the land. For example, um, if the Jews don't keep the laws of the sabbatical year of Shemitah, so the Torah says, I'll toss them out of the land. And this actually makes a lot of sense. In fact, most of the mitzvahs that you get tossed out of the land for, God forbid, are mitzvahs that are tied to the land. So there's a principle here. It's use it or lose it. If you keep the, the mitzvahs of the land, you get to stay. If you don't keep the mitzvahs of the land, you get tossed. What's odd is, the Ramban points this out, Nachmanides. There is a verse in the Torah that threatens to throw us out of the land for something which apparently has nothing to do with the land whatsoever. If a person is involved in arayos, in illicit sexual relations, in some sort of sexual activity which is prohibited by, the, by Jewish law, the Pesach says, the verse says, for that, the Jews will also be thrown out of the land of Israel. So this is bizarre. I understand why if I don't keep the laws that are tied to the land, sabbatical year, etc., why I would get tossed. But why should I be thrown out of the land for being involved in illicit sexual activity? Question number one, what does it mean that someone who lives in Chutzlaretz is worshipping a vote of Zara? They're involved in idol worship. Question number two, why should someone be thrown out of the land for being involved in illicit sexual activity? Question number three, There's a medrash in Yalkut Shimoni that is very inspiring. The medrash says, Ashrehem Yoshve Eretz Yisrael. How fortunate are you folks that live here in Eretz Yisrael? Why? She'en lehem lochet avon. Because people who live in Eretz Yisrael, they have no sins. Obviously, What's being implied by this medrash is there's something about living in Eretz Yisrael which makes atonement possible, which wipes out sins. The problem is there's another medrash in Dvarim Rabbah. When this medrash opens, Moshe is having a conversation with God, and he's at the border of Israel begging God, please, 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 won't you please let me into Eretz Yisrael? Please forgive my sin. I mean, I hit the rock, but please forgive my sin and let me into the land. And the Medrash says, God answered, Amar Kodesh Baruch Lemosha, Im Slachna Atamavakesh, she's kind, if you want me to forgive you, 
Batul Avrana, then I cannot grant your request of letting you into the land. If you want me to let you into the land, if you want me to grant that request, then I cannot forgive you. What's clear from this medrash is the land of Israel obviates any possibility of atonement. If you come into the land, you cannot be forgiven, which is the exact opposite of the implication of the previous Medrash which said that those people living in Eretz Israel, they have no sins. Implying that when you come into the land of Israel, your sins are somehow wiped out. That is, that atonement is possible, it's made possible by the land. So what is it? Is Eretz Israel a place that wipes out sins or that makes it impossible to wipe out sins? Fourth and finally, If, if the land of Israel is such a spiritual place, then why is it that the most vicious anti-Jewish campaigns in history were conducted here at the, at the beginning of the state? There was tremendous anti-religious feelings. Since then, we've had events like Operation Magic Carpet, where they, they took these beautiful Yemenite children brought up in from homes in Yemen, and when they arrived in the country, shaved off their payas and sent them to secular kibbutzim. But th that was an intentional program to secularize those Jews when they came into the country. How could that have happened in the land of Israel? How could it be that the, the, the kibbutzim in, in the early stages of the land made war on Torah? Like, how could that happen here in Israel? Even today, the sort of tension that exists between the secular and the, the religious, if there would be a party, a, 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 a secular party in America, that would make as part of their campaign the desire, right, to stifle any moves to support Orthodox Judaism in the land of Israel, or to cut off all funding to Orthodox Jewish activities, Right? as there is such a party here, there's actually a couple of parties here in Israel like this, if this would be going on in America, they would be called anti-Semitic. Yeah? But in Israel, such a thing can flourish. So what is going on that in this land, which is such a spiritual place, there is such passionately anti-Jewish feelings? What's happening? Question number one, how can it be that outside of the land of Israel, a Jew is called a worshiper of idols, someone involved in the Vodazorah? Question two, why is it that we get thrown out of this land for illicit sexual activities? What does that have to do with the land of Israel? Question number three. Is Eretz Israel a place that facilitates atonement or obviates atonement? And question number four. Why is there such anti-Jewish feelings, dafka, in this land? <coughs> question number one. What does it mean that when we're outside of the land of Israel, we worship Avodah Zarah? There's a, a verse in the Torah in the end of Parshas Vayetze that describes Yaakov coming back to the land of Israel. And the verse says, Yaakov halach ladarko, Yaakov was walking on the way, and then suddenly, he ran in, he bumped into the angels of God. 
ויאמר יעקב, כאשר רמון, יעקב סאה, right, this מחנה אלוקים, when he saw, how would you translate מחנה אלוקים? The camp of God, he saw the camp of God, וקרש שם המקום, so he called that place מחניים, which means two camps. Now why did Yaakov see one camp and call that place two camps? So Rashi's bothered. Yeah? And Rashi brings the Medrash Tanchuma. The Medrash Tanchuma explains that when, when Yaakov was traveling in Chutzlar, it's like any Jew, Yaakov was escorted by 600,000 angels. These angels of Chutzlar, these diaspora angels. When he was on his way back to Eretz Yisrael, 600,000 Israeli angels, right, descended to meet him at the border because the diaspora angels are not allowed into the land of Israel. And what he saw was, he saw these two groups of angels, 600,000 on one side of the border, 600,000 on the other side of the border, waiting, and he called that place Machanaim, two camps, because there was two camps of angels, yeah? Essentially what this means is, when you, when you fly to Israel, yeah, I don't know if you've had the merit of flying in during the day, but if you fly into Israel during the day and you look out the window, it's the most extraordinary sight when you see, you've been flying over ocean for hours, and then you see the Tel Aviv beach coming up, yeah? And as the Tel Aviv beach is coming towards you, you're like, it's just the most exciting thing, you're about to fly over the land, and as, you, as the Tel Aviv beach suddenly passes underneath the plane, if you listen, very carefully, you will hear as all of the Chutzlaretz angels dive off the plane and all the Eretz Yisrael angels crawl onto the plane, yes? Because you have to be escorted by Eretz Yisrael angels when you come in. Okay. Now, if there are two different kinds of angels, this must be hinting that there's two different kinds of hashkocha, there's two different ways that God runs the world outside of the land of Israel and in the land of Israel. Otherwise, you'd have the same angel. I mean, what's the difference between them? One has a two dots and the other doesn't? You know, like, there's got to be, there's got to be more of a difference than that. They obviously do different things. So, what's the difference between these angels? So, it's interesting. There's a Zohar. I don't learn Zohar. My Rebbe showed me the Zohar. There's a Zohar in Parshas Vayera that explains that these angels who were coming to greet Yaakov, these Israeli angels, they have a name. They were called Malachi Hashalom. Okay, now if that sounds familiar, it's because it's also words in a best-selling song. Yeah? In fact, to my knowledge, there's only two places that the words Malachi Shalom appear. In a passage in the Zohar, talking about Yaakov coming back into the land of Israel, and in a song that we sing on Friday night. What are these Malachi Shalom? Why are they associated with Eretz Yisrael? And why are they present on Friday night? So, in Talmudic parlance, when you want to describe closeness, intimacy, relationship, connection, the term that you use is shalom. 
That is, that is the technical term that describes connection. That's why the angels, when they come home with the man from Shul on Friday night, and they see that the table set beautifully and everybody's happy, everybody meaning that the man's wife is happy. So the scene is set then for connection. Right? And Friday night traditionally is the source, it's the fountainhead from which flows the Shalom Bais. It's the fountainhead from which flows connection in the Jewish household. So because of that, the Malachiah Shalom, these angels of Shalom, are present dafka on Friday night. That's why we greet them dafka then. So too, the Malachiah Shalom are the angels that greet you when you come into this land. Because this is the land of relationship. This is the land of closeness. The purpose of this place is to be, to be capable, to become a person who becomes capable of real yididus, of real connection, of closeness, of relationship with God and with man. It's interesting, there's a, a, a Jewish law that if a couple is married for 10 years in the diaspora, they're living in, 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 in Chutzlar at some place, and they don't have children, God forbid. So we're not surprised. The halacha assumes, like, what did you expect? You thought you were going to have children in Chutzlarts? No, that's, that's expected. If a couple, the halacha says, though, if the couple comes to Eretz Yisrael, and here they don't have children, there's something really wrong. Because this is the place of closeness. This is where the relationship should take place. The... The angels of Eretz Yisrael, because their job is to facilitate relationship, therefore they reveal God's presence. And the kind of hashkacha, the kind of intervention, divine intervention that you see in Eretz Yisrael always leaves fingerprints. There's always footprints. You always feel like God is just around the corner. And you can sort of sense and feel the miracles as they take place. I mean, if you've been here for a while, you start to get used to it. But I don't know if you remember landing at Ben-Gurion. But you land at Ben-Gurion, and between Ben-Gurion and wherever the taxi took you, there was already 74 miracles that took place. You know, like, you know, basically open, obvious. I mean, nothing runs normal in this country. Everything is hanging on miracles. <coughs> the angels of, er of Chutzlaretz, the angels of the diaspora, their job is to conceal God's presence. Because outside of Eretz Yisrael, we don't expect intimacy to be taking place. We don't expect that sort of closeness and connection. And therefore, outside of Eretz Yisrael, everything seems to have a natural explanation. The miracles are much less obvious. That's what the Gemara meant. When the Gemara in Kesuvah said, anyone who lives in the land of Israel, it's dome, it appears as if they have a God. You can see that you have a God when you're living here. But someone who lives outside of Eretz Yisrael, it seems as if they don't have a God. That's what the Gemara was thinking when it said that. But then what's the Gemara's conclusion? The Gemara says, no, 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 it's not that you don't have a God when you're living in Chutzlar, it's when you're living outside of Eretz Yisrael. It's just that you're involved in the Vodazara. What did that mean, that you're worshipping idols? Well, no. Vodazara does not mean idol worship. There is a word in Hebrew for idols, but Zara is not the word. Avoda literally means the service of. Zara is from the word zarut, zarut, which means disconnection, isolation, 
estrangement. Why is the worship of idols called Vodazara? Because instead of getting what I need directly from a Baruch Hu, by saying to him, God, please take care of me. Instead of having this intimate relationship, I'm hungry, please feed me. Instead of that, so what I do is I pull cosmic strings which allow me to extract from the universe whatever I want. And I don't have to have any relationship with God. God who? And I get all of my needs met just by pushing these cosmic buttons. That is called a Vodazara because it's the service of disconnection. I'm serving distance from God. That's why the Gemara says, and the Gemara concludes, anyone who lives in Chutzlar, it's the firmest person is involved in a Vodazara of sorts, not because they're a bad person, but because they're living in a place where God's presence is more hidden. And therefore, their relationship is more distant. It's more difficult to feel the connection. That will explain a few phenomena. One is, if you live here in Israel, when you travel to Chutzlarts, when you go to visit Baltimore, Washington, New York, you might find that it's more difficult to daven. You hear that from many, many people who leave Eretz and go to Chutzlar. It's, it's more difficult. You feel far away. Well, that's because the angels are hiding, hiding God's presence. He's right there. He's as close to you there as he is here. But you can't feel it. That makes things more difficult. Another phenomenon. I was just speaking to a group of people who live in Chutzlaretz, and they came as a group here to visit. And there was a whole discussion. It's so dangerous, they felt, to visit here now. How can they come? Yeah, this is not the time to visit Eretz Yisrael. We're, we're holding, you know, weeks, days, or perhaps hours before a war. How can they come? They were so, they were so terrified. They told me that as soon as they arrived, oh, they felt safe. And I said to them, you're crazy. Yeah, like you're 20 minutes from the flashpoint. Yeah, we're, 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 when everything breaks loose, yeah, you're, you know, you're, it's 20 minutes from here where everything's going to happen. It's like, what, why are you feeling so secure now? And they couldn't explain it. And of course, the answer is because here you feel that God is present and he's taking care of you. And when you're living in Washington, D.C., you're constantly terrified. Maybe I'm going to find anthrax in my milk. Yeah. There's one more phenomenon which this difference would explain, and that is the Kuzuri writes that Nevuah, what they call in English prophecy, although that's a very bad translation, takes pay- place primarily in the land of Israel. It can take place outside of Eretz Yisrael if it's about Eretz Yisrael, but Nevuah is something which is connected to the land. Why? So the Ramchal explains, Nevuah is not when God speaks to a human being. I think that's, that's a non-Jewish concept of nevuah, of, of prophecy. Nevuah is when God's essence flows into the human being. It suffuses your body. The person is so filled with a revelation of God's presence, they're knocked to the ground. Their body convulses in ecstasy. As the prophecy ends and God's presence pulls back, the dampness that's left in the sand, you know, when the wave pulls back from the sea, that dampness that's left in the sand, that's the prophetic message. 
Meaning, the essence of the prophecy is not that he spoke to you. The essence of the, pro- essence of the prophecy is that he flowed into you. You were connected. It's the ultimate intimacy between us and God. That cannot happen in Chutzlaretz, or if it happens in Chutzlaretz, it's got to be about Eretz Yisrael, because this is the land of intimacy. This is the place. So we understand a little bit the answer to the first question. Why is it that someone who lives in Chutzlaretz is involved in a Vodazora? They're involved in disconnection. Question two. We only get thrown out of Eretz Yisrael for a few sins. Why elicit sexual relations? Arios, sexuality is a tool that was given to us by God to create closeness. Like all tools, if this tool is abused, it will cause the exact opposite of what it was created to cause. Yet nuclear energy was created to cure cancer, but nuclear bombs cause cancer. Arios, sexuality was created to create closeness. However, if someone uses sexuality in violation of the formula, going against the rules that God set, then the sexuality produces distance. The most extreme example of this would be rape, where nothing could create more zarut, more disconnection than that, than that act, but that is an act using sexuality. If a person here in Israel uses sexuality but not according to the formula to create intimacy, meaning they, they don't follow the formula that would create intimacy, they're going to create distance and disconnection. And obviously that person who's using this extraordinarily powerful tool to create disconnection, they don't want relationship. Otherwise they would follow the formula. So if they don't want relationship, what do they need to be in this land for? This land is just about relationship. There's nothing else happening here. So God says, if people are involved in arayos and illicit sexual relations, they might as well leave the land because this is not the place for them. This is only a place for people who want connection, not disconnection. This is how one of the, the great sages of our generation describes the, the tremendous potential that exists in this land. Roshoma Volba made the statement, Mahi skulata haruchnit shel Eretz Yisrael. What is the spiritual power of the land of Israel? Nira, it seems, he said, Kiba, that here in Eretz Yisrael, Yoter Kal, it's easier. Meshir bekol makom, from any other place in the world, it's easier here to create a natural and powerful link with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, to connect up with Him. You don't need to have deep thoughts or fantastic investigations in order to connect to God here in Eretz Yisrael. The simple life in this country, Bekocha Yesh Lavili Dekach, it brings you into a relationship with God. Lemishazocha, for someone who merits. And then he concludes, and here he's speaking to you and me. 
The Kaven Shizoi Skulat Eretz Yisrael, since this is the magical power of Eretz Yisrael, that it can create intimacy, closeness with God. Therefore, anyone who lives here is halachically obligated to achieve it. If God gave you the ability to sing, you got to sing. He gave you the ability to dance, dance, man! He gave you the ability to draw, get out the paper! He put you in a place where you can achieve closeness, better do it. Because the gifts that he gives you, those are your obligations. The third question we had was, is Eretz Yisrael a place that makes atonement possible? Like the Midrash says, how fortunate those people who live in Eretz Yisrael, they have no sin. Or is Eretz Yisrael a place that obviates atonement? And that's why God said to Moshe, if you want to come into the land, fine, but then I can't forgive you. If you want to stay outside the land, then, I, then you can have forgiveness. Which one do you want? So, I think the answer might be a Yerushalmi. There's a Talmudic passage in Yerushalmi in Tractate Bikurim, 3.3. The, the Gemara there says, a Rav, on the day when he gets smicha, a Chasen, on the day when he gets married, and the Nasi, the, basically the king of Israel, the religious king of Israel, on the day when he becomes appointed the king. So, all of these three people have their sins forgiven. We've all heard this before, that on the day when you get married, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, we didn't realize it was part of a much larger class. There's three people who have their sins forgiven at these events in their life. Now, what is this? Is this like in Monopoly, you get free parking, you know, and then like, you know, you're set? What, like, what's going on that your sins are forgiven? This is not a religion for free gifts. So what's, what's happening? So, like this. Think of the Rav on the day when he gets smicha. It could be that this man had been learning for the last 30 years, having tremendous pleasure from the Torah, enjoying it for himself. He loved the Torah that he was learning. And it's possible that he might have only had in mind that he wanted to grow in Torah. The Torah he was learning was for him. It's possible someone could think such a thing. Mistakenly, but they could think such a thing. <coughs> On the day when he gets smicha, he is being authorized no more. He is being charged with answering questions that Claudius Israel might ask. He's being given the assignment of taking care of other Jews. He's now a servant of, uh, of the Jewish people. That could be a sharp right turn in his life. And at that point, he might start to think, you know, maybe my life is just not about me. My, this whole time I thought my life was just about me, but maybe now I realize, you know, my life is really all this time, even though I didn't realize that it's been about taking care of others. And all those 30 years of preparation, it was just so I could take care of you, he realizes. And of course his sins are forgiven because he does such a massive tshuva. Suddenly realizing it's not about me, me, me. It's about you, you, you. So of course his sins are forgiven on that day. It's possible that a chassan could be living his whole life. This, 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 this single guy is living his whole life for me. Yeah, right? I get up when I want. I do what I want. I eat what I want. 
I pursue a career that I, there's no consideration about anything but me. And then one day, this wonderful lady shows up in his life and he says, will you marry me? And she says, what do you mean? And he says, like, what do you mean? What do I mean? Mary. She's been like, are you going to take care of me? Is that what you're asking? You want to take care of me the rest of my life? And he says, yeah, that's what I'd like. I'd like to take care of you for the rest of your life. Oh. And then he realized what getting married is. That suddenly he's signing up to live for somebody else for the rest of his life, to take care of them, to become a giver and a lover. So the Rishami says there's tremendous opportunity here. This man should turn his whole life around. He should start thinking completely differently. For the first time in his life, he might realize it's not all about me. That should cause tremendous tshuva. You're not automatically forgiven on your wedding day. It's just the wedding day causes such a rethinking of life <coughs> that you end up doing tremendous repentance. You change your life because of what you realize. Obviously, the same is true about the king. The king is the servant of the Jewish people. That's what the Nazi exists for. He exists to take care of Kla Yisrael. So since he's here to take care of the entire Jewish people, on that day when he's appointed Nazi, he realizes, you know what? I'm not living for myself. That should cause a tshuva. The exact same thing is true about coming into the land of Israel. When a Jew comes into the land of Israel, if they understand that they're going into a land whose segula, whose magical power is closeness and intimacy, then when they arrive here, they should realize, you know what? Life is not just about me. It's about giving to God. It's about giving to other people. That should cause a tremendous tshuva in the person. That's what the Midrash means when it says, how fortunate are those people who live in the land of Israel? Because since they're living in a land that exists just for the sake of giving to others, so they won't have sins because they'll do a tremendous tshuva. We assume. What did the Midrash mean that if Moshe came into Eretz Yisrael, then his sin wouldn't be forgiven? But as long as he was outside of Eretz Yisrael, it would be forgiven. So it's this concept. You're only obligated to do what you can do given the gifts that you have. Right? When I get to the next world, God is not going to ask me, why didn't you sing opera? Yeah? I, I, I'll, I'll explain because I love the Jewish people. I didn't want to hurt them. <laughs> yeah? I don't have the gift, so I'm not obligated. When you're living outside of Eretz Yisrael, there's only so much tshuva which is possible for any of Eretz Because how much return, tshuva, return, how much return can you do to God when you're living in a place where he's hidden? Now Moshe Rabbeinu did an unbelievable tshuva. He did the maximum tshuva that was possible in Chutzlar, it's outside the land of Israel. But that amount of tshuva that he did outside the land of Israel would not be sufficient if he came into the land of Israel. And therefore, the whole sin would return. It would come back to life again, so to speak. He would have to do a whole new tshuva once he came into the land. So you can't ask in one breath, God, please forgive me and let me into the land. If I let you in, then your sin is unforgiven. I assume that Moshe Rabbeinu would have done a whole new tshuva and been forgiven again if he stayed here. But until he did that new tshuva, he would have been saddled with the sin once more. And that's why God said, what do you want? If you want to stay in Chutz Laretz, your sin's already forgiven. You want to come here, your sin's not going to be forgiven anymore. Fourth and finally, why is it that there has been such anti-Judaism in the land of Israel? 
the government, the army, the streets, what's going on here? So I have two possible answers. One is, I think, more rational, perhaps even a psychological answer. The other is spooky. The rational answer is as follows. It is impossible to come into the land of Israel and remain on the spiritual level you were at when you were outside of the land of Israel for the following reason. If I continue to behave exactly as I behaved when I was in New York, when I arrive in Yerushalayim, so I am now behaving in a way which is inappropriate, perhaps, for the land of Israel. Because what was fine in New York, really legitimately fine there, where God is hidden, is not acceptable here, where much more is expected of you in terms of your relationship with God. You are not a hypocrite. If you wear a bathing suit in the pool, right, and a dress while walking down the street, that's not hypocrisy. You are behaving appropriately for your environment. Yeah? Someone can't say, I want to be consistent, so I'll wear the bathing suit every place. Yeah? That's ridiculous. Obviously, right, you want to behave appropriately for your environment. There are certain things which are perfectly kosher, lamahadr, and lot fine in New York, which just don't fly in B'nai Brak Yerushalayim. You can't do that here. So therefore, a person who comes here either goes up, they either start behaving differently when they arrive, or, if they don't, they find themselves in open rebellion against God. If they just try to remain the same, they are now in a fight with God. And God's presence is so palpable here, it is so obvious that He exists, that this acute feeling that you're fighting with God creates an inertia. And you feel like, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to change! And now, you're anti-religious. Now you are fighting against God and the whole campaign. And the longer that a person stays, God forbid, in that state, the more anti-religious they'll become. So if people just don't move when they come into this land, immediately they're going to find themselves at war with God. And then that inertia can produce a very, very anti-Jewish environ here in the land. perhaps uh, more frightening. There's a spooky explanation for why there's such anti-Judaism here in Israel. The only thing in the world that's really real is God. Everything else is only real to the extent that it somehow gets close to God, connects in, and then God's essence flows down into that being or creature. How do you get close to God? So, we said many times, closest in the physical world is measured by inches. Closest in the spiritual world is measured by similarity. The more similar you are to God, then the closer you are to Him. So, God is kind. The extent that I'm kind, I'm close to God. God is merciful. If I can become merciful, then I become close to God. God is hidden. His most dominant character trait, his most obvious character trait. The more that I hide the good things that I do, the more I become like God, who also hides the good things that he does. 
right? He never leaves a person with a designer label. <laughs> yeah, all of his acts of kindness are hidden. Eventually, a person could become so much like God that they actually draw so close, they touch him, so to speak. In the language of the Talmud, that's called dvekus. You become stuck to God. At that point, his reality flows down and fills you, and then you become real, kaviyachol, like God. Now, given this is the case, you're presented with the following existential problem. Since evil people are not like God, that means they're not real. So when you're looking at an Adolf Hitler, or a Yasser Arafat, or a Saddam Hussein, you are looking at a very scary hologram. That's all. There's nothing there. He's not real. And if they're just a very scary hologram, they can't cause any damage. They really can't do anything. They can scare you. They go, but they can't really do anything because they're not real. It should be like they fire bullets and you know, like, you know, you know, when they hit their body, they just make a shadow on the wall. Like there's nothing there. It shouldn't, there shouldn't be any ability to cause damage. And yet they cause immense damage. But the only way for them to be causing damage is if they can actually somehow get a hold of something real. If they can get a hold of something real, then they could cause real damage. So where do they get a hold of something real? So the Mikhtab Miliyahu, Rev. Dessler, in the fourth volume, on page 43 and 44, explains how evil people cause damage. He says, It's like what's written in the spooky books. Bekamakomos in several places. Ki hasitra achrav haklipot. The force of evil in the world and the darkness in this world. Yonkim et chiyutam. They suck their vitality. Minitzotzot hakedusha shenafl rishutam. From the sparks of holiness that fall through our fingers into their hands. Min Torah, the mitzvahs from the Torah, which is real, and the mitzvahs, which are real. She'anu osim, that we do, ipagamim gedolim. But when we perform those improperly, we're not so careful to get everything right. I mean, I, I said Kriyat Shema before I went to sleep. I mean, most of it. I, mean, I didn't say it from a sitter, but I, I think I said the words right. I, I mean, I, 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 I think I koshered the pot properly. I, I said a bracha. Right? I said a bracha, didn't you hear? Right? When we do that, we are tapped into reality. But the sparks of Kedusha that could be released by, by our act of goodness ends up falling through our fingers because we don't do the mitzvahs properly or we don't use the Torah properly. Use it for intellectual entertainment instead of changing. And then what ends up happening is these sparks fall into their hands. And as an illustration of this, he describes what has gone on here in the land of Israel. Yisrael, Yisrael. 
the force of evil in the world grabbed a hold of the dearness of Israel that is in the heart of every Jew's hands. I'm saying in the heart of in, in the heart of every Jew. It's not just that they they can then take these sparks and create a secular place. They can even use the land of Israel for the sake of spreading real heresy. This is awesome and terrifying. Here in Israel, there are more mitzvahs in our hands than any place else in the world. Dafka, a lot of mitzvahs that are very connected to this land, whether they're mitzvahs hatlus ba'aretz, the mitzvahs which actually have to do with the land, or other mitzvahs that have to do with connecting with people and with God. Things that can be done uniquely well here in this land. If those things we don't pay careful attention to, if we don't perform these things properly, then we give them power. The bad news is that the American government cannot unplug Saddam Hussein. The good news is, you can. It wasn't the American government that was giving him power in the first place. It was us. We who live here in the land of Israel. Anybody who has the ability to perform mitzvahs, they have the ability to knock off these guys or to give them more control, more influence. Practically, what am I recommending? So, most obviously, you live in the land of connection. There's a place where you can talk to God like no other place on the planet. A woman said to me today that she has a constant, ongoing conversation with God. All day, she's schmoozing with him. He's her best friend. She's a normal Jew living in the land of Israel. When you come to the land and you settle here, you must talk to God. And I'm not just speaking about Shemona Esrei. I'm not speaking about formal prayer. You have to schmooze with him out loud, using words to talk with him during the day. Talk to God. It's a local call. Yeah? I mean, invest. It's like it's so easy. Just open your mouth and he's there. Of course, this is a good thing to do in Chutzlarts as well. But here you have a unique ability, therefore, you have a unique obligation. Point number two. And I recognize I'm raising this a little bit late in the game. When you come to Eretz Yisrael, so you have to ask yourself, what sort of gashmius, what sort of physical wealth do you want to bring here? When uh, Yaakov was on his way back to Israel, he ran to Esav. And the Medrash says that he gave all of his wealth that he had gathered outside of Israel 
he gave it to Esav as a gift. Why? He said, It's not worth bringing things from Chutzlaretz into Eretz Yisrael. That was his comment. And then he came into Eretz Yisrael. Can you imagine the following scene? You decide you want to make Aliyah. Someone says, you know, you have rights if you make Aliyah. I think you should speak to an Aliyah counselor. She said, great. So you go and you speak to the counselor. And the counselor says to you, uh, so listen, you have the opportunity to have three lifts, right, over this many years. You say, what's a lift? You say, well, you fill a huge container with, you know, all the stuff from Chutzlar. anything you want, you bring in tax-free. So, you know, I won't be using that, right? It's any Kedaili, yeah? That's not worth it, yeah, right? They're going to say, you're crazy. We're not letting you into the land of Israel, yeah? <laughs> You know, you, you, have, you have bank benefits. And you say, you know, look, I, I don't want to have a tax free bank. I don't want to bring dollars into this country. Yeah? Okay, this is exactly what Yaakov did. Now, we're not recommending anything radical. <laughs> However, there are certain things that are really perfectly appropriate in Chutzlaretz, certain kinds of clothing. They're, they're 100% glock kosher. Certain kinds of music. It's, 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 it, the, the verses are psalms, yeah? You know, like, it's, it's got to be kosher. David Melech said it, yeah? There's certain kinds of music that even if they're glad kosher, they don't belong in Eretz Yisrael, yeah? There's certain kinds of gashmias that you don't want to bring here because you don't dress in your bathing suit when you're walking down the street. So, when you come back from Chutzlaretz, you bring things into the country, ask yourself as you're packing your suitcase, does this belong there? When you're here, so don't purchase those things that you think don't belong in Eretz Yisrael. Okay, now, you know what I'm talking about. In other words, I don't have to specify. In your own mind, you know what for you is appropriate and not appropriate. And you just have to be honest with yourself and say, this does not, if God asked me, does this belong in the land of Israel, I'd say no. Is it kosher? Yes. Can my neighbors right, accuse me of being you know, not from? No. But, come on, it doesn't belong here. Third and finally, and these are just sample recommendations, it's not exhaustive. This is a place which is all about connection. There is a kind of speech which is all about disconnection. So I'm not going to give the whole talk about Lashon Hara. We've heard it so many times, we're deaf. What I am going to say is, the next time that you go to speak critically about somebody, so ask, is this worth losing Eretz Yisrael over? Like, God's going to say, oh, you don't value relationship, so then I'm going to take you out. Is it, like, is it worth it? We know that we lost the base of Migdish most recently. We lost Eretz Yisrael. We went into diaspora most recently because of sinischinim, which was expressed as speaking very critically about other people. So the recommendation is just think, like, a new, a new hashkafa, a new way to look at things. This could cost me or us Eretz Yisrael like, do I want to, to engage in that sort of behavior, or am I here to connect? I'll leave you with a story. When I 
came here for the first time, I had no idea I was going to like Eretz Yisrael. I was not a Zionist by any means. I was like, you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't really interested in coming to Eretz Yisrael. The only reason I came here was my Rebbe told me, if you want to be a normal Jew, you have to go see what it's like in Eretz Yisrael. So I came here to check it out. We ended up staying for nine months. At the end of nine months, we ran out of money, so I had to get a job. So I got a job in America, and I had to go back and work in order to earn money to come back here again. And we really wanted to come back. But I remember we flew out of Eretz Yisrael on a Sunday. Our last Shabbos in Eretz Yisrael, a whole bunch of friends came to see us. We were getting on a plane the next day. And there was this one neighbor, a sweet, sweet lady, who we'd gotten to know over the year, who came to our Shabbos table for the third meal on Saturday afternoon. And we were so sad because we were leaving Eretz Yisrael. We didn't know when we were coming back again. And I'll never forget, she told my wife and I, when you leave, when you go back to Los Angeles, where we're going to, you won't remember that wonderful feeling that you have when you're living here. Very shortly after you arrive in Chutzlaritz, you can't conjure that feeling anymore. You can't, you can't recreate it. And you forget what it felt like. She said, but remember that you once had a feeling when you were in Eretz Yisrael and it felt really, really good. Remember that. You'll remember that you had a feeling. You won't remember what it felt like, but you remember you had a feeling. And she said, if you can just hang on to that, just remembering what it felt like, then that will bring you back to Eretz Yisrael again. So for two years, my wife and I walked around LA thinking, I remember it once felt better than this. Don't remember what it felt like, but it felt better than this, yeah? When you're here, enjoy the feeling. Enjoy what it feels like to live in a land of intimacy. Take advantage of it. God forbid, for whatever reason, you have to go out for a period. So you won't remember the feeling. But remember that there was one such a feeling. And lie in the source of longing to have that feeling again, the Kodesh Baruch will bring you and all the rest of Kala Yisrael back to the land once more. That concludes our presentation of Ancient Wisdom for Modern Minds by Lawrence Kellerman. For more tapes by Lawrence Kellerman, visit www.lawrencekellerman.com That's www.lawrence.com K-E-L-E-M-E-N dot C-O-M.